Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. Antitrust is legislation preventing or controlling trusts or other monopolies and works to promote competition in business. In 2019, RCAP USA filed a historic class action lawsuit against the big four meat packers. A prime example of how RCAP USA is aggressive in all three branches of the United States government, but also a prime example of antitrust law at work. We sat down with antitrust expert and law professor Thomas Horton to discuss the history of antitrust as it relates to the cattle industry and where we need to go from here. Today we have on Professor Thomas Horton from the University of South Dakota. Professor Horton, would you give us a quick introduction of where you're from? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, as you mentioned, I'm a professor of law at the University of South Dakota Knutson School of Law, and I'm in my 13th year here as a full-time professor. And before becoming a full-time professor in 2009, I spent 28 years as an antitrust and complex litigator, uh, working basically out of Washington, D.C., but handling cases throughout the United States and even internationally. So I have, in my 28 years, it broke down to about 15 years in the private sector with several very large antitrust law firms and 30. 13 years in the United States in various capacities, including as a uh, federal court uh, law clerk and a trial attorney with the Federal Trade Commission, and then two stints with the United States Department of Justice's Antitrust Division. And I've also been appointed as an assistant special counsel by Rhode Island to investigate the collapse of the banking system in their state, which included looking into organized crime activities in that state and governmental corruption. So I've had a very varied career working on both sides of the aisle. I've worked for the biggest companies in the world. And then I've also worked for the United States. And as I say, the past 13 years, I've completely dedicated myself to uh, teaching and scholarship and to antitrust scholarship in particular. And uh, with some emphasis in the agricultural field. Very cool. That sounds like quite the career. Um, And so on top of that, you have some interesting titles attached to your name. Professor Hyde Prime Trial Advocacy Fellow and my favorite, the Barracuda. Let's talk more about your career and how you got to those titles. What was it about antitrust law that drew you and how did you come to deciding that you wanted to be an antitrust attorney? It's one of those serendipitous things that happens in life. After my first year of law school, I was working as a waiter at TGI Fridays and uh, hoping to get a law job. And uh, all of a sudden, I saw that the Federal Trade Commission had an opportunity for a law clerk for the summer. And of course, I got my application in for that right away. And I was so excited, I got called for an, you know, an interview to come on down. So I put on my one suit that I owned. I went down to the commission and I met with one of the lawyers there. And after about 45 minutes, he said, well, you know, you seem like a really nice guy. You've done really well, but 
I just don't think this is going to be the right position for you. And so I left crestfallen and, you know, I was walking around the city, just really despondent and, you know, really uh, demoralized. So later that afternoon, you know, we don't have cell phones in those days. This was way back in 1979. I called my mom and I said, you know, well, if the opportunity didn't pan out, she said, oh, well, well wait a minute. They've been calling here all afternoon trying to uh, find you. They have a softball game tonight against Jones Day, which is the biggest antitrust firm in the country. And uh, they very much would like you to come down and play softball if you can. <laughs> so I went and uh, I got there about five minutes before the game. And they said, hey, would you mind batting first? I said, sure, I'll bet. And nobody believes this, but it's absolutely true. Um, I hit the uh, first pitch of the game out to right center field and I raced around the bases. And uh, there was a, another fellow from Harvard, Peter Carfagna, who was working there at Jones Day. And he said, hey, you guys can't have Horton. He doesn't work there. And they said, oh, yeah, he's coming here as a summer clerk. And I thought, geez, that's interesting news to me. But I was uh, sent home. <laughs> so anyways. You know, I invited me out afterwards and had beer and hamburgers and all that. They said, oh, we want you to come down for a full day interview on Friday. So I went down on the full day interview. And the next thing I knew, I got an offer. And at the FTC, I just fell in love with antitrust and consumer protection. And I knew right away that's the where I wanted to, you know, spend the rest of my career. So uh, I just pointed myself in that direction. and then. Funny how life works out. I, you know, I wrote a paper for them on price signaling and I presented that to uh, the judges for, you know, possible clerkships. Well, here comes Judge Thomas, who had the biggest set of, of antitrust cases in the country coming up. And so he said, oh, I want this guy who's, you know, written on antitrust. So I got hired for that and got to work on the biggest set of antitrust cases in the country, which set up my career. And later I found my way back to the Federal Trade Commission and then to, uh, you know, everything from then on came out of that clerkship that I had, which I guess came out of that summer at the FTC because I got hired by one of the big firms that had been on that case. And then in 96, I got tapped to run for the U.S. House of Representatives in Virginia, unsuccessfully, obviously. But I ran a good race and got the highest percentage of any of the challengers in the state. And uh, then I, so I ended up at the Department of Justice's antitrust division after that. And then I left there and went to another big firm that had been involved on the other side of those cases uh, that had been before uh, the judge and the clerkship <laughs> and uh, served there for uh, some period and then went back to the Department of Justice. And next thing I knew, I found my way into teaching in 2009. And I've been here ever since and really love teaching. And I love scholarship and just it's been a real blessing for me to get this teaching position. That's incredible. So how I have to ask, how did the name, the nickname Barracuda come about? <laughs> well, that was when I was in Rhode Island. And we were investigating governmental corruption and organized crime. And we were putting on televised hearings every night from about 5 p.m. 
to 1030. And so it was almost like a soap opera. So every night, everybody in Rhode Island was tuning into their TV to watch these hearings. And I guess my questioning was considered very aggressive. And uh, the next thing I knew, my nephew said, oh my gosh, the, uh, I, I just heard about you and read about you. They're calling you the Barracuda. I said, oh my goodness. Anyway, so I, you know, I became a little bit of a, I guess a media star up there in Rhode Island. You know, I would go to the airport and they'd say, oh, uh, Mr. Horton, we love seeing you on TV and we loved how you went you know, after this guy, and uh, we moved you up to first class. So <laughs> it was kind of a really interesting period of time in my life. Very uh, cool. More than a year up there. So, you know, it was, that was really something. Very interesting. So you, more recently, you were the keynote speaker at the 2021 RCAF USA convention, and your presentation was a huge huge hit with our attendees. People are still talking about it, actually. Um, and I know I learned a lot from you. And I think our podcast audience is really going to learn a lot as well. So back at convention, you reminded us that our cattle industry principles go back to colonial American times and that we are a nation of small businesses and entrepreneurs that value fairness and fair opportunity to compete on the merits. Um, in fact, you told us how George Washington was the first president to stand up to monopolies and how all four of the presidents on Mount Rushmore fought against monopolies. You sound like you're ready to come and teach a class here. Maybe I might. You never know. <laughs> but um, let's go back in time and walk the audience forward through the history of antitrust laws. So could, let's start with the Sherman Act. So tell us about Senator John Sherman and his law that would work to preserve free and fair competition. Yeah, well, Senator John Sherman was the most interesting figure in American history. He was the brother of William Tecumseh Sherman, who was the famous Northern Civil War general who uh, made Atlanta howl, made the South howl by uh, burning his way through Georgia. And um, the interesting thing was, uh, General Sherman had absolutely no interest in politics, and both parties tried very hard to get him to run for president and to become the president after Grant, but he turned down every, uh, you know, request to become president. Well, meanwhile, here's his brother, who was a senator from Ohio, who desperately wanted to be president, but <laughs> he just never could make it. But the one thing he did do that was really great for our country and has stood the test of time was that he authored the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, which, as you said, I think uh, memorializes fairness for small businesses and actually was written to protect America's middle class and small business entrepreneurs. But um, unfortunately, the courts have not seen fit to uh, interpret the law that way, that uh, Congress wrote it back in 1890. And Congress has over and over again, tried to get the courts to be more aggressive in interpreting our antitrust laws and enforcing them against big business, uh, but not with much success through the years. So uh, we've gone from the Sherman Act to 1914, as we talked about at the RCAF um, meeting in 1912, 
we had the presidential election where you had four candidates running and they were all arguing who was going to be the most aggressive in enforcing the Sherman Act and in enforcing antitrust laws. And so you had Teddy Roosevelt who felt it's okay for companies to get big as long as the government used a big stick against them and kept them under control. You had the president, William Howard Taft, who felt that companies shouldn't be allowed to get too big and that we shouldn't allow monopolies to form because once they do, they're hard to control. And then you had uh, President Wilson who ultimately won because they split the vote and he was sort of in the middle between the two of them and you had Eugene Debs, the socialist, and uh, you know he, he had about over 10% of the vote, surprisingly. So uh, the election really came down to uh, who would be the most aggressive in enforcing the antitrust laws in our country. And I think I mentioned the fun fact of that election also that at one point, Teddy Roosevelt uh, was giving a speech and he was shot. <laughs> By, by an angry uh, Republican. And uh, he said, ladies and gentlemen, I've just been shot. So I'm going to have to shorten my speech. And he went on and spoke for another half hour or so before he let them take him to the hospital. <laughs> so that's the kind of you know person we were talking about with Teddy Roosevelt uh, and his big stick against big corporations. So I don't know if I'm going into too much detail for you if I am please stop me. Uh, but anyways, out of that election came uh, Louis Brandeis working for President Wilson. And he recommended that because the courts were not enforcing the Sherman Act aggressively enough, that we have several new acts, which included the Clayton Act, which said that the government could block any merger that may substantially less in competition. And that word may is very important. It's not can or would, it's may, but the courts have not read it as may, unfortunately. And then uh, also the Federal Trade Commission Act. So in 1914, you had both the Clayton Act and the Federal Trade Commission Act and section five of the FTC Act is designed to prevent unfair and deceptive acts and practices in Congress. So you can see that Congress was very concerned with, as you said, fairness and unfairness against our middle class, our smaller entrepreneurs who are trying to compete in a world with these behemoths who literally could knock them out anytime they chose or who could just simply control them. And uh, so Congress has continued to speak through the years, again, in 1950, following World War II, where there was a study that showed that the Axis countries had had their um, businesses heavily monopolized. The U.S. said, again, that we don't want to be like the Axis countries. We need to have aggressive competition in business. So they tightened up the Clayton Act again in 1950. But, you know, again, the courts seemed to think, you know, that didn't mean anything. And since then, Congress has continued to try to make 
changes to the antitrust laws, generally with the idea of getting the courts to be more aggressive in enforcing the antitrust laws. But the courts keep finding ways to write out fairness from the antitrust laws and say, fairness has nothing to do with economics and you know economists can't define fairness. So how can we have fairness in the law? And unfortunately, what it's led to is this, this thought that efficiency rules all. Well, efficiency and economies of scale have been interpreted to mean bigness and gigantic, gigantic, gigantism, if that's a word. And, you know, unfortunately, what we find is that big is not necessarily efficient. Depends on how you're defining efficient. And if you look at, I was a biology major in college. So, you know, I spent four years studying biology. And if you look at biological ecosystems, stability comes from having diversity and competition at all levels of the system, aggressive unremitting daily competition. And that's what allows adaptive radiation and adaptations that create new innovations. Well, what's happened is we've had this idea that, well, no, we prefer bigness, just like the Axis countries did, by the way. And we out-innovated them in World War II because we had uh, more competition that was created by the government. In fact, in the building of the atom bomb, we had four teams competing against each other to come up with the best trigger mechanism and the best way to convert uh, the uranium. And so the idea that big is somehow the best thing for our economy is taken over. And the problem that you have is that A, it's not the most efficient, it's not the most sustainable, it's not the most innovative, and B, the big, when there is economies of scale that lead to higher, you know, uh, returns and whatnot, none of that gets passed back to the consumer or to the rancher or to the farmer. So they don't see any of these supposed efficiency gains. So, you know, really, from my perspective, the antitrust laws right now are upside down in this country, and they're used to support big business. And big business has taken over um, the economies in the U.S. I think it's a very dangerous, unsustainable situation. And I think the Biden administration recognizes this. And they're anxious to see something done about this. But you have a lot of judges who've been appointed who have this idea that, oh, no, economic efficiency rules everything. And so I'm going to let any merger go through here. And it's just absolute nonsense. And I don't know how we got to a point from George Washington saying that they ought to hang the monopolists from the highest gibbets they could find to, hey, we encourage monopolies and we love them and we think they're great. So come and monopolize your industry and we'll give you all the support you need. And that's where we're at unfortunately. You know, that, that was a really powerful recap of what antitrust 
focus has looked like in the United States, you know, going back to the early 1900s. But coming back to our listeners' um, industry that they are focused on, talk to us about how in 1919, that's really when the American government put a microscope on the beef industry and said, we have a problem here. And what does that look like going forward from 1919? Again, you sound like you should be teaching a course. You're absolutely right. In 1919, the United States recognized that the beef industry was heavily concentrated and had gone against everything the antitrust laws stood for. And so already way back in 1919, farmers and ranchers were getting screwed. Consumers were getting screwed in buying beef at the other end. So they wanted to do something about it. So they actually had the new Federal Trade Commission that had been created through Louis Brandeis to investigate the industry. And they investigated and found all of these anti-competitive, unfair business practices that had resulted from the monopolization of that industry by a handful of businesses. And they said, we have to do something about this. And so it led Congress again in 1924 to pass yet another aggressive act, the Packers and Stockyards Act, which again is very, very aggressive if you read the language of the act and basically is saying to the courts, we want you to enforce the antitrust laws against these beef packers. Do something about it. Well, unfortunately, in that time period, there were five big beef producers. And do you know how many today there are? Four. So we're going in the wrong direction. And how the heck is that happening? Well, it's happening because the courts just said, oh, the Packers and Stockyards Act, that's nothing new. That's just more the same Sherman Act. And again, you know, efficiency overrides everything, la-di-da-di-da. And now here we are faced with this terrible situation where the small rancher is being put out of business. And that's exactly the opposite of what our laws were intended to produce. And why are we letting this happen? So tell me, as a cattle producer, who am I supposed to keep accountable for enforcing that Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, and the Packers and Stockyards Act? Well, I don't really want to get into the current RCAF litigation, but that's exactly the kind of thing that we have to have. We have to have lawsuits that are brought under the Sherman and Clayton Acts and the Packers and Stockyards Act and that are designed to enforce those laws. And we have to have the courts somehow begin to get it through their heads that this whole efficiency thing is just more nonsense created by big business to justify their unfair monopolization of these industries. And they're, re- you know, they're just reaping monstrous profits while they're screwing the little guy, putting little, you know, people out of business and in 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 a way destroying our economic ecosystem that's made America so strong, sustainable, and viable since our inception, when our framers recognized that having strong competition at every level, including the rancher level and including then up to the sellers. Uh, and purchasers, but that's not what's happened today. 
And so, uh, you know, you have monopolized beef industry. You have monopolized grocery industry. So they're taking out huge pieces of profits and then squeezing the rancher and then squeezing you and me when we go to the store. It's that simple. You know, I like to say, imagine a beef supply chain so efficient that the the big four are making record profits and a cattle producer like me can't even make a living wage. And that is the reality of where we are now because they have valued, like you said, some sort of efficiency model and sold it a bill of goods that it's really not. And it will end up killing the American cattle industry. You know, we're going to have to bring you here as a professor. You're stating these things so brilliantly. But what really is upsetting, too, is I think you were getting there. They used the pandemic. So they use anything like a pandemic situation to come to us and say, oh, well, there's this terrible situation and it's causing us now to have all this disruption and our costs have gone up and la-di-da-di-da. And you look at the picture, they're making the highest profits ever. Now, how is that? Yeah. They're reaping monopoly profits. And I don't know what it's going to take for the United States to get it through its head that monopolization is not good for our economy and good for our industry and good for our sustainable economic environment much less our moral integrity and our economic soul. That's right. The pandemic absolutely did create the largest disconnect in beef prices that the consumer was paying and cattle prices that people like we were getting paid in the history of the cattle industry. And so if we can't use this moment in time to make lawmakers and the court system absolutely aware of this situation, I I mean, we can't afford to let this moment pass, can we? No, we can't. It's a very real, real situation when it's my balance sheet that I have to look at, when it's my cash flow sheet I have to look at. And then I got to read in Big Ag Media how they are boasting about another new record quarterly profit, new record, um, you know, yearly profits. It's, it's, you know, it's my reality. It is your reality. And it's a very tragic, sad side to your reality that the American public doesn't get and doesn't see, which is that farmer and rancher suicides are at their highest levels ever. And uh, losses of family farms that have been in, in the family for generation going to big corporate farming. And, you know, we talk about America's economic soul. That's what's made America strong is our middle class, our middle class producers, our entrepreneurs, the people that are out there in the field that innovate every day and come up with new ways to save costs. Not these giants who have figured out a way to just screw everybody and then come back and say, oh, well, gosh, you know, we're, we're, we're just being very efficient. And it's nonsense. It truly is nonsense. And if you look at efficiency from a sustainability standpoint, in terms of our entire economy, they've got it backwards. <laughs> what is going to happen to rural America if we don't turn this ship around? We're losing family farms. We're losing 
the family ranches, and we're literally losing, we're, we're having suicides on a daily basis, and alcoholism, drug use, and it's all so unnecessary. It's all so badly devised for a sustainable economic system. If you sat down and wrote out, you know, essay, a student essay on how to make the American economy unsustainable, you couldn't do a better job, in my opinion, than what we're managing to do today. Yep, and I mean, I just wrote a caption for one of our graphics today, and it's, we've already lost over half a million cattle ranches since 1980. At what point are we going to stand up and put a stop to this until we lose another half a million of the industry that is the backbone of America? You know, America was built on the backs of the farmer and the rancher and as you say, the middle class, the worker. And if we don't protect that, then, you know, I, I really get very discouraged thinking about our future and we can't let this continue. We have to be aggressive in saying this is not sustainable. This is not the way to do business and we're not gonna allow it to continue. And that's not socialism. It's not communism. It's not anyism. It's Americanism. You know, you kind of remind us that we are losing American agriculture's greatest resource, and that is the human resource. Because we have these generations of farmers and ranchers that hold on to generational knowledge of how to work the land, of that cow herd, of, you know, certain ecological systems on their farm and ranch. And once they throw in the towel and say, you know, we can't cash flow this operation anymore. We got to go work in town. Nobody comes back, back into agriculture, like production agriculture. It's just very rare. And so if America thinks that, you know, 50 years down the road, after we lose another tens of thousands of farmers and ranchers, that we can just kick this old pony back up and get everybody back in the business. You can't Google how to save calves in a blizzard. These are people that have generational knowledge. And so if we continue to trend with this shrinking U.S. cow herd that is absolutely alarming, what is the future of American food security? What does this mean to the consumer? Well, I think you've also identified a key issue uh, that people should be very worried about, which is what is the future of American food security? Because these behemoths aren't just controlled by Americans here in America. There's foreign ownership, and I won't get into the dangers of that, but that's something to think about. But let me go to this point, too. You know, I'm a farmer today, it's not just the selling of the cattle. It's we're getting screwed on every level because let's say with your tractor now, you, you buy a tractor from John Deere or any piece of their equipment and it breaks down. Now you can't fix it, which they've been fixing. Farmers have been fixing and ranchers have been fixing their own equipment for hundreds of years. And they save money by doing that and they also innovate. Well now, no, you're not allowed to do anything because supposedly 
the company does not sell you the tractor or the farm implement. They sell you the software, the license to the software that runs. So if it breaks down, you have to call and then their guy's got to come out and he might, you might be waiting 48, 72 hours for that guy to come out. And then another point is people don't have any clue that these companies also have figured out ways with their software to literally monitor everything that the uh, farmer and rancher does. And they're taking that information, which used to be uh, taken together by the government and then given out to the public free. They're taking that information and monopolizing that information and then only selling that information to their other big suppliers. And so any new guy that wants to try to come into the business is got a thicket of patents that he can't get through. He's got information that he can't get access to. He can't have the farmer fix the equipment. I mean, it's virtually impossible now to come in and enter. And supposedly what the economists have told us is don't worry about if these big companies get bigger because new entry will occur and it will control them. And that's just a bunch of, excuse me, bullshit. It's not happened that way because they prevent entry from happening and they control everything virtually. So not just purchase and supply and all of that, but the information, the equipment, they've got virtually a stranglehold on the farmer or rancher at every level. And as you say, how's anybody going to break that stranglehold? If we think this is going to be good for the America of 50 years in the future, we better wake up. Right. If we don't turn things around, we will become even more food dependent on other countries and we're going to be a hungry nation. Well, we're seeing the effects of that with the Russia thing right now of we had no idea how much we were getting from Ukraine and Russia. And now we're seeing corn prices and wheat prices just skyrocket. And so, yeah, I think this is further furthering the food security issue that is at hand. Yeah, and I mean, do you want your food safety controlled by potentially a foreign adversary by the Chinese? I sure don't. I know that you and Jaden have talked about this. Um, you attended a really monumental conference recently hosted by the USDA regarding consolidation in the meatpacking industry. Can you give us the details of what went on there? We would love to hear the conversations. Well, it was an amazing uh, workshop put on by the United States Department of Agriculture, and they invited 20 professors or so from around the United States in different fields, uh, including sociology, uh, political science, economics, law, agriculture, to try to have an inter interdisciplinary approach to the problems of concentration and what we can do about it. And we talked about exactly the issues that we're talking about here today. And what are we going to do about concentration? And how are we going to make the system more competitive and more sustainable? And so what actions the United States Department of Agriculture can take for example, over in the coming years, uh, whether using the Packers and Stockyards Act 
or the Clayton and Sherman Acts or uh, some of the other acts that the Securities Act um, to control this rampant uh, consolidation and increasing concentration that is stifling American competitiveness. Well, do you think the USDA was listening? Yeah, I th think they were. And that was very gratifying to see uh, that they had sent four USDA officials who were all very well educated on, on ranching and on the beef and cattle supply. Uh, and so I had the feeling that they were listening and they're very determined to try to do something because uh, they recognize that this is really a key moment in American history. And I mean, I don't want to sound maudlin, but you know, it's our time and we can't just sit idly by. We have to do something. And so I think they were listening, but we have to remember they come out of those meetings and they get hammered by uh, the high paid uh, lobbyists in Washington, D.C. and, you know, the big money that gets thrown at them. And it's very easy for a senator, for example, to say, oh, yeah, I'm very interested in all this. And then turn around on the other hand and uh, tell the beef industry, oh, don't worry, you know, this will all pass. So what are the next steps that we need to encourage producers to take and that we as an industry need to take to help just break this cycle and get us out of this rut. This consolidation is not working and we're going to break up the industry, which is what we did in World War II. And, you know, we, we created the most innovative and competitive uh, economy in the world very quickly to overcome the Axis forces. And, you know, I think that the companies will scream and howl, but I think it'll be good for the American public. And we gotta say, look, we're going to listen to the rancher and we're gonna do whatever we can. And, you know, I think it starts with our courts too. And I can't comment on the current RCAP case, but it's a strong case. So let's let these cases go to American juries. There's a reason that the Seventh Amendment of the United States Constitution calls for juries because the American public understands these issues. And ironically, the economists have gotten the courts to take these cases away from jurors by saying, oh, the public can't understand these things. Only economists understand the complexity of all this. Again, it's nonsense. The problem is the consumer does understand it. The public does understand it. We understand what's going on. So if you put us on juries, we're gonna hold these people accountable. So they don't want anything to do with our jury system. So they're gonna do everything they can to fight it. But the American public has got to fight back and say, you know what, enough's enough. Uh, you've had your time and now we're going back to a competitive system that works for every one of us. You're saying it is time to be a strong American. Yeah, I think so. And yep. again, it's not socialism, it's not communism. It's not anything, it's Americanism. Go back and read your history. Go back and read what George Washington actually said about monopolies, what Lincoln said, what Teddy Roosevelt said, what William Howard Taft, a conservative's conservative, said about them. What Walter Adams, the father of the Chicago School of Economics, he's turning over in his grave now, listening to the nonsense that the 
Chicago schools been propounding. So, you know, it's not anti-American. It's Americanism. And you know what? We have to be Americans. We have to fight for our independence. We have to fight for our right to compete. Yep. We have to learn from history to, in order to save our industry, I think. But so this has been an incredible conversation. And I have that same feeling I did after convention of I'm just inspired. And I just feel like I walked away learning more from you once again. Oh, I hope so. I think a lot <laughs> of people don't pay attention to me in the antitrust industry because they'll just say the guy's a nut. I, I believe in America and the American spirit. And that's what it's going to take to protect our independence and our economic strength in the coming decades. Yep, I love that. So obviously I have to ask this question because we always ask this at the end of our podcast. What is your favorite cut of beef and how do you like it prepared? Oh, I like a T-bone, medium rare. Very nice. So do you have any final comments before we jump off of here? Thank you again for inviting me. I always feel uh, so honored when I have the opportunity to speak with our GAP and its representatives. And uh, I, I'm so proud of the work you do and appreciative of your efforts. And uh, when you're feeling a little discouraged or down, just know there are people who are out there listening and your voices were definitely being heard at the uh, USDA workshop I was at last weekend. There was an awful lot of talk about our GAP and you know its goals and spirit that's amazing to hear (laughs) that helps us go through the rest of the week (laughs) it's very easy in your position i think to get a little despondent and discouraged at times because you feel like you're literally beating your head against a side of beef (laughs) but uh, you know no like rocky you're you're it's all coming together and uh, just keep fighting Professor Horton brings so much knowledge about antitrust, and I love learning from him. We are so thankful to have had him on the podcast, and we are so thankful for his work on behalf of the American cattle producer. It is imperative we stand our ground as American cattle producers and work towards regaining profitability for American ranchers, or history is going to continue repeating itself as our industry will continue to vertically integrate. We must reinstate MCOL to bring back competition for American beef in the grocery store, and we must create competition in our cattle market to get better prices for American cattle. As RCAF USA's ongoing antitrust litigation moves through the courts, we can hope for a positive outcome that will aid cattle producers and give them a fighting chance. To watch Professor Horton's 2021 convention keynote presentation, visit the RCAF USA YouTube channel. I encourage you to join us and be a part of this fight. You can become a member for $50 on our website, and with that membership, you get perks like our brand new quarterly magazine and our bi-monthly newsletter and so much more. While you're there, we would love for you to join us at our 2022 annual convention in Deadwood, South Dakota, August 18th and 19th. You can register online at our website, and we also would love for you to stay involved in the conversation by following at USA on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter. listening to today's episode of the RCAF USA Roundup. To learn more about RCAF USA, visit our website www.r-cafusa.com.